Welcome to episode eight of the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, what were the big takeaways from the latest round of Senate fundraising numbers? Why did so many candidates pass on an open house seat in Lansing? And how is Bill and Ted's excellent adventure connected to at least two house races? Buckle up. I'm Nathan Gonzalez. I'm editor and publisher of Inside Elections, and I'm looking forward to watching my Seattle Seahawks play the Baltimore Ravens in Maryland's 7th District, represented by Democratic Congressman Kwaisi Mfume. I'm Jacob Rubashkin, reporter and analyst for Inside Elections, and uh, I am not looking forward to seeing my New York Giants play the Washington Commanders uh, in New Jersey's 9th District, which is represented by Bill Pascrell. And I'm Erin Covey, also a reporter and analyst at Inside Elections, and I am a nominal Cowboys fan, so I don't actually know who they're playing this Sunday, but their stadium is in Roger Williams District in Texas. And Aaron, maybe that'll depend on how well they do for the rest of the season, whether nominal changes to passionate. Is that how it, is that how it goes? Yeah, though, mm, NFL is just like kind of lower on the priority for me in terms of sports teams. But yeah, we'll see if they start, you know, actually doing. I know they're doing better this season, but I'm not getting my hopes up. There you go. And I actually had a very Washington, D.C. moment last night when I was taking my daughter uh, to her soccer game uh, just outside of D.C., driving into Prince George's County. Uh, and there was a sign that said uh, Executive Angela also Brooks. And for those of you who've been listening to the podcast, uh, she's running for the United States Senate uh, this cycle. Uh, and then after the game, we were walking to the car and there was a plane flying very low near the field. And we looked again and it was Air Force One. And because Joint Base Andrews is just a, was just a few miles away, like, oh my goodness, that, that's probably taking President Biden, uh, Air Force One taking President Biden to Israel. So it was just one of those moments where uh, different parts of sectors of my life intersecting. And, and it kind of reminded me that it's it's pretty cool to live in the DC area sometimes. Before we talk about our three big stories, let's do a few headlines. Uh, as of this taping, this is Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time, Republicans still have not selected a Speaker of the House. Uh, we'd actually planned to look like Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio had the votes wrapped up. He did not. And so Republicans are moving forward. Uh, when that happens, or depending on whether that's electing a speaker or giving more powers to North Carolina Congressman Patrick McHenry as the speaker pro tem, uh, we'll, we'll analyze that later. But we are in a bit of a holding pattern as Republicans still can't get their act together on the Hill. Jacob, what uh, what should people not miss? So Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the environmental lawyer, conspiracy theorist, and of course, member of the uh, Kennedy clan uh, dropped his long shot bid in the Democratic nomination for president against Joe Biden uh, in favor of running in the general election as an independent. Uh, while he is ostensibly a Democrat, Kennedy has spent the last several months and arguably the last several years appealing to more conservative voters, doing a lot of work on conservative media uh, while eschewing uh, speaking to a lot of the more traditional Democratic constituencies. And polls show now that he's actually far more Republican 
popular among Republicans than he is among Democrats. And so uh, in the limited polling we have of the general election between Biden, Trump, and, and potentially Kennedy, he actually takes equivalent amounts from both candidates or in the case of a new Marist and PBS poll, more from Trump uh, than he does from Biden. Yeah. And Aaron, what should folks not miss? On Tuesday, Republican Congresswoman Debbie Lesko announced that she was planning to retire. So she represents a pretty safe seat north of Phoenix. And so the Republican primary will probably determine who succeeds her. But Lesko specifically talked about the chaos of Congress over the past couple of weeks with all the speaker drama in her announcement, um, which I thought was interesting. And I'll be curious to see if there are any other frustrated Republican members who were maybe on the fence about retiring this cycle and what's happened over the last couple of weeks pushes them over the edge. Yeah. And it was a little strange. She's in the majority, right? Sometimes you might feel more right. frustration in the minority because you you have very little power in the House, but she's in the majority and she felt this way to make this decision. So I think it's a uh, very notable and uh, great that we're talking about open seats uh, here in a few minutes. Yeah. I think Democrats are having a better time in Congress right now, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> the Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. The GSPM program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional. Uh, when I did the GSPM program, uh, we had a campaign management course and half the class had to do campaign plans for Illinois Democrat Barack Obama. Uh, the other half had to do campaign plans for Illinois Republican Jack Ryan in the 2004 Illinois Senate race. And th through that, uh, I was doing uh, the plan the Republican plan against Obama, and was noticing a number of present votes that Obama took in the state legislature, ended up incorporating that into what we were doing as a class project, but then ended up writing about that in uh, for, my, for my regular job at the Rothenberg Political Report at the time. And it was just a good example of immediately being able to take what I was doing and learning in class and applying that to, to, uh, to the real world. So please uh, click on the link, check out what the GSPM program uh, has to offer. Let's dive into the latest round of Senate fundraising numbers with a little help from one of my kids' favorite lines from The Little Rascals. Candidates had to file their quarterly fundraising reports with the Federal Election Commission this past Sunday. And once again, Democrats are dominating the money game in most of this year's competitive races. Uh, the top overall fundraiser this past quarter was California Congressman Adam Schiff, who is running for the open Senate seat in the Golden State and who pulled in a massive $5.9 million over the last three months. Uh, Schiff has so much money sitting in his campaign account uh, that he actually made $400,000 just on interest. Uh, that's more than some other candidates overall that we'll talk about a little later. Uh, now, while California won't determine the Senate majority, uh, the two next biggest fundraisers uh, are in really crucial races. Senator Sherrod Brown in Ohio and Senator John Tester in Montana, uh, whose chances are crucial to Democrats' hopes of maintaining their majority. Uh, they brought in $5.6 million and $4.9 million 
respectively. The top fundraising Republican, uh, who is pretty low relatively on on the top fundraisers overall list, was Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who raised $3 million, uh, though that was actually quite a bit less than his probable Democratic opponent, Congressman Colin Allred. So, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about these um, the fundraising numbers and, you know, 5 million, 10 million. Uh, what does it actually mean, Arid, for the uh, fight for the majority? Yeah. So um, I think the main top level takeaway, like you said, Jacob, is that Democrats continue to outraise their Republican opponents um, pretty much across the board in these Senate races. And that is going to be crucial and probably necessary for them if they want to hold the majority next year. Um, they, they're they going to need Brown and Tester and then um, potentially Manchin, if he does run for re-election, to pull in large sums of money and be able to build up their war chest while you have Republicans um who are in a strong position to flip these seats just based on the partisanship of the states. Um, so Democrats are going to need a lot of money to be able to communicate their message. And especially these Democrats who are in red states who will need to communicate that they are different than the national party and be able to run ahead of Biden. Uh, Jacob, we've seen in recent cycles where uh, having the most money, though, there can be some diminishing returns. Uh that depending on the partisanship of the state, there are a lot of different factors in a race. So how do you think that that factors into us talking about fundraising numbers, whether it's raised on the candidate side or personal money that candidates are investing into these races? It's an excellent question. I think that a lot of this um, ultimately comes down to like meeting certain thresholds more necessarily than having more money than the other candidate, right? You need enough money to run a competitive campaign. There are certain kind of blocking and tackling aspects that take a lot of money that that uh, is required of, of Senate candidates. But, you know, I, I keep thinking back to 2020 when we saw Democratic Senate candidates across the board just raise these insane numbers quarter after quarter. I think in every single race, with perhaps the exception of Texas uh, that was on the map, um, Democrats were vastly outraising their Republican opponents. Um, you know, we had Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, I think, raised uh, north of $120 million. He had, I think, the largest quarter in Senate fundraising history um, in, in the uh, final quarter of 2020, running against Lindsey Graham, ultimately lost by 10 points. The uh, the Senate race in Maine, Susan Collins defeated Sarah Gideon by nearly 10 points. Sarah Gideon had $15 million left over in that race. I think she still has, three years <laughs> later, uh, almost $5 million sitting in her campaign account. She's been slowly oh, wow. uh, giving it away to charity, uh, but there is some scuttlebutt that perhaps she is waiting around for um, either the Collins seat or Angus King, uh, the, the other senator there, uh, his seat to come open to make a play uh, for the Senate using that money. So I, I think that, like Aaron said, right, it's it's probably necessary for Democrats to outraise their opponents in a lot of these tough races, but it's not sufficient. And 
whenever I hear the terms blocking and tackling, this is not just a football only themed uh, episode, uh, but I'm transported almost 20 years back in time to uh, some NRCC briefings, the National Republican Congressional Committee. Uh, for a while, the chairman was Tom Reynolds of New York, and he would say blocking and tackling over and over. It almost became a, a, a joke among the reporters in the room at these briefings. Uh, but one of the things that I'm I was looking at through these numbers was also the cash on hand. You talked about the quarterly raised, but the, but the cash on hand advantage that Democrats are building. I'll just run through a few quickly. John Tester, um, 13 million, Jackie Rosen in Nevada, 8.8 million, Sherrod Brown, 11 million, uh, Bob Casey Jr. in Pennsylvania, 7.3 million, Joe Manchin, 11 million, uh, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, 6.9 million. And it's striking to me that in, some of these races will take Pennsylvania, for example, Dave McCormick just got into the race. Now he supposedly has, you know, is going to be able to spend millions of his own money, but uh, he he's playing catch up both in terms of num, you know, fundraising or dollars and in the polls or Tammy Baldwin. It looks like the preferred candidate of for Republicans, Eric Hovde, uh, hasn't even gotten into the race yet. And Tammy Baldwin sitting on almost seven million dollars at the end of September. So I I get it that um, recruiting self-funders have been has been an intentional strategy for Republicans. You, they still has that, that plan has to be implemented, or that playbooks they still have to run the plays and and make it happen. It's just it's more difficult than just writing a check and equaling the Democratic money, and then they're going to win. But I, I don't I don't know. What do you how do you think the the Democratic or the the Republican plan on recruitment and fundraising? Do you how do you think that that's going so far the, a year out from the election? Well, it's still not entirely clear how much some of these wealthy candidates are willing to commit to their Senate bids. And we're not really sure. going to know that until, the, I mean, the primaries haven't really heated up in a lot of these races, like in Ohio, Montana, um, West Virginia. And it's not clear if folks are going to be spending a ton in those primaries, definitely in Ohio, I think, because you do have like a pretty um, evenly divided field without a clear front runner. And so even though you have like, Matt Dolan, who is incredibly wealthy, Bernie Marino, who is not as wealthy as Matt Dolan, but is quite wealthy. And they are both in strong positions to compete against Brown in the general election. They might have to spend a decent chunk of their own money in order to get through the primary. And neither of them are raising a ton of money outside of what they have put into the race. Um, and so... It's they can't just depend on their own ability to fundraise because at a certain point, you know, unless you are like you have unlimited amounts of funds, unless you're like Rick Scott, you're not going to just keep spending and spending like you're going to have to develop relationships with donors to get yourself across the line, especially if you have one of these if you're stuck in one of these more contentious primaries. I was just going to say, you know, I, I think Ohio is the only race so far where we've seen the, the self-funder class of Republican Senate candidates really put their money where their mouth is. Uh, elsewhere, you know, uh, we just haven't seen it yet. I think obviously, look, Dave McCormick spent, what, $20 million of his own money in last year's Senate race in that primary. It's not like he hasn't demonstrated the ability and willingness to write himself a massive check 
but he hasn't done it yet, right? I think Tim Sheehy in Montana is another one that uh, the conversation around him has always centered on, you know, his vast personal wealth. We'll know a lot more about that personal wealth in about 11 days when he has to uh, release his campaign, uh, his finance, personal finance disclosure. Uh, but he's only given himself a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, and of course, in West Virginia, said, uh, Governor Jim Justice, who at one point claimed to be the wealthiest man in the state, uh, but who pretty famously has a lot of financial issues, has really not contributed anything uh, to his campaign and is in fact uh, you know, being outraised by Joe Manchin, who isn't um, even in the race yet, is still deciding whether or not he's going to run. And the conversations can evolve over the cycle on how much a candidate is going to spend. Let's fast or rewind all the way back to last cycle with Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. He also spent millions of dollars in the primary. And then we got to the general election. He won the nomination. And if, and there was a lot of finger pointing. I think he was, as the nominee, then expecting the party to come in and help him. The right. party was saying, no, you have your own money. Like you, you take it. And he was then dark for uh he was dark for a period of time while Fetterman was uh, allowed to be on TV he was you know not on the campaign trail for months uh, but he was allowed to be on TV defining himself and so there was just a lot of I feel like it was that Spider-Man meme on Twitter or X where different Spider-Men are pointing at each other like no you you spend the money you spend the money and so I uh, I don't know these these cycles have a funny way of sometimes I'm not playing out exactly how they're they're intended to um and one of the there's also the open seat where Democrats also have a financial advantage uh, in Michigan. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin uh, finished September with five point two million cash on hand, uh, and which is which is far more than any of the other either Democratic or Republican candidates in the race. But that's another case where an important race where Democrats have the financial advantage. Yeah, and I thought um, this quarter was really interesting because Slotkin does not have a clear path to the nomination. She has um, a couple of Democratic challengers. Um, one of the more serious ones is Hill Harper, who is an actor um, and has a bit of a base in Detroit where he has some connections in like the business community. But he only had like 400000 on hand at the end of the quarter. So um Everyone's talking about like, oh, this is going to be like a potentially competitive primary. But if Harper and some of the other challengers aren't able to raise the amount of money that Slotkin is raising, and it looks like they probably aren't, then I'm not really sure how competitive it's actually going to be. But the Republican primary, on the other hand, um, that field is still taking shape. So we'll see, especially if Peter Meyer gets in the race, who comes from a very wealthy family, how that plays out. Yeah. And it does to remind to zoom out. Um, it does remind me and remind us that Republicans are laser focused on those big three states, West Virginia, Ohio and Montana, states that Trump is likely to win again and states that should be competitive and probably will be competitive. The Pennsylvanias, the Michigans, the Wisconsin's are just not a priority right now. I mean, they Republicans want to win those. But it's, I, I think that they spend far more time on those top three because they only need a net gain of two in yeah. order to, to get to a majority. One of the key pieces of the House battleground are also open seats, including 
Congresswoman Slotkin's open seat in Michigan. I'm Tom Barrett, and I'm running for Congress to stop the D.C. spending spree and finally get inflation under control. And that's why I approve this message. That was Tom Barrett, who is the likely Republican nominee in Michigan's 7th District, which is one of the most competitive districts, House districts in the country this cycle, and also one of the only open House seats this cycle. So over the past 75 years, 34 House members on average don't seek re-election each cycle. But so far in 2024, only 16 members have announced they're not running for re-election. And actually, a dozen of these members aren't running for re-election because they're seeking higher office. So it's not really a true retirement there. Exactly. Yeah, that's one of my pep. There's a difference between retirement and not and seeking another office. But why why do you think that's the case? Well, you, Aaron and Jacob, why why do we think that that number is below average right now? Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I think some of it has to do with the fact that last cycle was a redistricting cycle and you did see a lot of retirements because folks were kind of forced out of their seats or um, just drawn into seats that were very different than their old ones and kind of took that opportunity to bow out. Um, But yeah, I don't know. Aside from that, what are some other reasons that y'all think this is the case? I think there's also limited upward mobility on the political ladder. Uh, this cycle, next year, there are only 11 governorships that are up, and so that yeah. uh, versus you know 30 plus in the in in the other gubernatorial election. So there's limited opportunities, and then on the Senate side, there are a few open seats, but you have a lot of incumbents running for re-election. Right, all those vulnerable Democrats. Uh, that limits where House members can go. If there are open seats, then that gives people opportunity. But there just aren't, aren't as many opportunities. But Jacob, what are we? What else are we missing? Yeah, look, I think that it's still early in the cycle, relatively speaking. There's, you know, uh, we don't have filing deadlines for another couple of months yeah. just to begin with, and and those will play out kind of over the next uh, six or seven months uh, across the country. Um, you know. Uh, I think as the picture of of the fight for the House becomes clearer, we might see members, you know, take a look in the mirror and and make kind of a cold hard calculation about whether they want to uh, stand for what could be a competitive reelection or potentially end up uh, in in the minority for another two years or for for a new two years. And uh, in the case of the Republicans, you know, I, I think traditionally, right, we see a lot of members go home for Thanksgiving, go home uh, for the holidays and uh, make their decision then after spending time with family. I think the the fact that we've only seen uh, a handful of pure retirements, right, I, I, I want to say off the top of my head, just four, right, um, that uh, I, I would expect that number to increase, especially perhaps with the chaos of uh, yeah. The last couple of weeks in the House really underscoring how miserable, honestly, for lack of a better word, uh, all of the members of Congress seem to be right now. Yeah, Lesko could be the beginning of a trend. We'll see what happens. Yeah. But, but we also have the strange case, I'll just say, uh, of Congresswoman Victoria Sparts of Indiana, who has made some kind of perplexing <laughs> moves through the speaker fights, who she had previously announced that she's not running for reelection, but has now apparently publicly reconsidering that decision. So we may have one of these open seats going in the in the other direction, but she's the uh, exception rather than norm. Most people, when they say they're out, they're, they're out and they're not coming back. Um, yeah, she also yeah. talked about resigning. 
briefly. Yeah, so. Who knows? And, and, Who knows and when we started do? the cycle, right, she was she was getting ready to campaign for the Senate. So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I, I, I just I keep thinking about kind of the, the 2020 election and the, the quote unquote Texas that we saw right after the 2018 election when, um, you know, Democrats flipped two seats in Texas and then came up like, uh, you know, very, very close uh, to flipping. I want to say there were another five or six seats where the margin was under 5%. Yeah. Uh, and, a, and in a lot of those districts, those Republicans called it quits. They they left because I think they were they were worried that they were going to remain in the minority and that they were going to lose their own seats. And ultimately, of course, that didn't happen, right? I don't think Democrats flipped a single seat in Texas in 2020. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that as as the picture becomes clearer and members start to see whatever writing on the wall there may be, uh, we could see more from either party making those tough decisions. And the other factor could be the presidential race, meaning as people get a more clear picture of who they are going to be running with at the top of the ballot uh, and how weak their nominee may end up being, then that may force them to reconsider as they think about their own reelection, how difficult it's going to be uh, in their own reelection based on that pressure from the top of the ticket. Uh, but let's talk about uh, Michigan 7 a little bit more, Aaron, because usually when there are open seats, there is a flood of candidates, right? Everyone right. wants to run. You have all these local office holders or aspiring businessmen and businesswomen and who jump into open seats. But in this Michigan seat, it, that's not the case. Quickly, things quickly consolidated behind two candidates. So how why, how did that happen? Yeah, it's an interesting case. Um, and I think it's kind of for different reasons on both sides. So on the Republican side, Republicans don't really have that much of a bench in mid-Michigan, this part of the state where the 7th is based. Even though the district itself is fairly competitive, there aren't too many Republicans um, in elected office in the area who would have been natural fits for this district. And they already had um, their nominee from last cycle. Tom Barrett was from the beginning of the cycle very interested in running again for a second time and um I think when, when you have a candidate who was the nominee the previous cycle and got decently close and wasn't a bad candidate, usually other folks who might run are going to defer to them. So on the Republican side, once it became clear that Barrett was going to run again, um, I think that pretty much cleared the field. The Democratic side was more interesting because Democrats do have a pretty deep bench in this part of the state. And there were quite a few um, high profile relatively high profile names that were floating around initially for this seat. Um, but, you know, Alyssa Slotkin is very well known for her fundraising abilities um, and had pretty big shoes to fill. And so I think there was like a lot more concern on the Democratic side that if you had a crowded primary of a bunch of candidates, um, that would force them to spin down their resources and enter the general election in a weaker state. So they really wanted to make an effort to kind of consolidate behind the scenes around one candidate, especially knowing that Republicans probably wouldn't have that much of a primary on their side so that they could, the Democrats could then focus on the general election. Um, and then there were also several of these Democrats who were looking at running initially, didn't end up running because they were in powerful positions in the Michigan state legislature. Michigan has a trifecta of democratic control for the first time in a very long time. And so this is a 
big opportunity. Um, if you are a Democratic member of the Michigan State Legislature and probably not an ideal time to leave. Um, and so eventually everyone settled around Curtis Artell, who was a state senator for a while, is very close to Governor Gretchen Whitmer and um, worked in her office for most of the year before resigning to run for Congress. So now you have um, two pretty locked up primaries at this point. It looks like Barrett is the presumptive Republican nominee and Hertel is the presumptive Democratic nominee. And you're going to see both of them focused right now on just building up their war chest and preparing for a expensive competitive general election. Yeah. And this feels like, uh, I, I don't think any single house district is a bellwether, but this is the type of district that yeah. Democrats have to hold in order to get back to the majority. You know, if Republicans are taking over this type of district, then I think that they are well on their way to holding the majority and, uh, and maybe even expanding it. Um, and it is remarkable. I think Hertel, the consolidation behind Hertel is remarkable in the fact that Democratic voters, particularly primary voters, have been prioritizing uh, nominating women, right? Women yeah. have been dominating many competitive primaries, uh, other minority candidates, and now, you know, they're rallied behind a white dude, which is not bad in and of itself, but it's just, it's different than the trend that we've seen with Democratic uh, primaries uh, in the past couple cycles. Yeah, definitely. And one one note uh, from your story, Aaron, when you wrote about this race for the newsletter uh, that I thought was interesting about Barrett, that he's the great grandson of a former congressman. I'm going to butcher the name, so I don't even <laughs> want to attempt. Louis Rabot. I don't know if it's uh, Rabot, but anyway, he was in Michigan, represented Michigan in Congress uh, 70 years ago, but he's known for introducing legislation that added the phrase under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, so I thought that that was a, a, an interesting tidbit from your from your story but yeah. is there anything else we're missing on i mean house races that currently exist without knowing house races that are you know still still to come as a decision making process unfolds no i mean we have not talked about california 47 another open seat but that would probably take a whole podcast episode <laughs> i'm all for it anytime, anytime we talk but that's really the only other like competitive open seats. Um, the rest of the open seats are all in relatively safe districts. One of the solidly Democratic open seats also in Southern California is where Grace Napolitano is not running for re-election in the 31st Congressional District. Now, this seat includes San Dimas, which is the home of Bill and Ted, of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, but that's not the only seat with a connection to the 1980s iconic movie. I am the Earl of Preston, and I am the Duke of Ted. Put them in the Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden? Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. So, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was actually filmed in Arizona, and a Democratic candidate, Andre Cherney, either he lived in or still lives in the home that where Bill S. Preston Esquire, that's the not Keanu Reeves uh, uh, character in the movie, where that movie was filmed. And so uh, Cherney is one of multiple Democratic candidates that's running in this first district in the Scottsdale area uh, for the right to take on Republican Congressman Dave Schweikert. But before we talk about the race, the most important question I have is, 
Have either of you even seen this movie? No. <laughs> I feel like this movie is like a combination of a bunch of things that are of no particular interest to me. I was looking at the plot. I already, I don't like time travel movies to begin with. Cause okay. They're so really... strike one against the movie. No yeah. time travel. <laughs> what else is a problem for you? It's like an aggressively Gen X movie. I feel like, I think we just missed the, uh, missed the yeah. cut there. Um, but certainly fodder for a lot of reaction gifs out there online. <laughs> Here we go. And, and Keanu Reeves, I mean, how can you, uh, you know, this was before, before he'd done so many, so many other things. I know. I, I think this does show, show my age a little bit in how, how much of a, have a importance this was to my upbringing uh, that this, but this movie. And so I, I've probably bothered, uh, Cherney multiple times over the years once I figured out because we interviewed him as a candidate when he ran for Congress uh, years ago and that's when I, I don't even know how we how we got talking about it but then over the years I would email him and say do you still live in that house <laughs> I mean, he, he was good natured he was good natured about it but so Aaron let's talk about the race itself we just talked about Michigan uh, where it quickly narrowed down to, to two people one person on each side but here in Arizona uh, there's an incumbent Republican, but then at least six Democrats are running. Uh, why, you know, walk us through those candidates and, and how did that, how did that happen? Yeah. So this race was super close last cycle. So Congressman Schweikert represents um, Scottsdale and kind of the Northeastern part of the Phoenix suburbs, which is a super fast growing changing part of the state, as you can imagine. And this district has been trending away from Republicans really for the past couple of cycles. And so Schweikert has become increasingly vulnerable over the years. And last year, when there wasn't like a ton of national attention on this race, at least compared to some other more competitive House races, the Democratic nominee, Jevin Hodge, actually got like within one point of defeating Schweikert. So I think that created a lot of excitement around this race and a lot of interest from other Democrats who are in the district who figured that this could next year could be the year to take down Schweikert. Um, and so typically Democrats are usually better at Republicans than consolidating at, at consolidating around one candidate and avoiding a messy primary that hurts them in a competitive general election. But that is obviously not the case in this district. So like you said, Nathan, there are six credible candidates who are in the race at this point. Um, and most of the folks I've talked to about the race um, see that there are three potential front runners at this point. That list includes Cherney, who you mentioned earlier, Nathan. He has obviously run for office a few times previously in Arizona and is very well connected politically. And then you have Marlene Galan Woods, who is a former broadcast journalist and is also the wife of the late Attorney General Grant Woods, who was a Republican Attorney General in the 90s, but was super critical of the party and um, like publicly supported Biden in 2020. And then you have Amish Shaw, who is a state representative who already represents a decent chunk of this congressional district um, and is also an emergency room physician. So those are probably like the three front runners. But then you have three other candidates that could be competitive, depending on how this primary goes. So you have Connor O'Callaghan, who is a Wall Street veteran, Andrew Horn, an orthodontist, 
and Kurt Cromer, who is the CEO of the Arizona Red Cross. And among those three, O'Callaghan might be the one that I would keep an extra eye on just because he is personally wealthy and has already loaned himself half a million for this race and started like spending that money on ads. Um, and so it looks like he could potentially break into the top tier of candidates. Um, but this is going to be a really interesting primary to watch um, because this is, again, like a real opportunity for Democrats to flip a seat, which they need to do um, if they're going to take back the majority. Um, but you also have a primary with a lot of interesting personalities and factors that could get really contentious depending on how the next like 10 months go. Arizona also has super late primaries. They're, this primary is not going to be till next August. So there's a really long runway until we know who the Democratic nominee is here. Right. That gives that gives candidates an opportunity, but then it's a, a sprint yeah. uh, to the general a sprint to the general election. Uh, Jacob, how does this race, does this race remind you of another race or or what are you as you look at a crowded Democratic primary? What do you think are some key things to some key things to watch? Um, I, I, I always want to be careful of kind of overreading primary dynamics into uh, a general election situation. I, I think that uh, even in a state like Arizona with such a late primary, um, you know, it's not like it dooms a candidate to have to fight uh, to get the nomination. I think especially in this case where you've got several candidates who are personally wealthy. I mean, uh, Aaron, I know you mentioned O'Callaghan is the one who's been putting money into the race, but uh, Andre Cherney is is quite wealthy. He's had a successful career. Uh, Marlene Galan Woods, I think, looking through her PFD, um, she, you know, she and her late husband were, were quite successful as well. Um, Personal financial disclosure, just to, to lay that out there. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Um, and, you know, Schweiker has stepped up his fundraising, but he's not. Uh, he's never been kind of a, a, a stellar fundraiser and, in fact, has run into some legal trouble uh, over the years uh, navigating the campaign finance system. Um, you know, I... In terms of uh, a Democratic primary that had six candidates who were who were running credible campaigns i mean that that is a lot yeah and no no runoff no runoff in arizona right so that'll probably lower the threshold for the can to win just winning with the plurality uh is a is a different dynamic uh, a different dynamic as well i was just gonna say i think it's interesting you know you mentioned the the tom barrett ran it back in uh michigan's seventh district and that really you know, spurred the Republicans to clear the field and consolidate behind him. Whereas Jevin Hodge, the Democrat who uh, ran against Schweiker last time and came up just short, decided not to run again, right? And then uh, not only did he decide not to run, but Hiral Tipperneni, who was the 2020 nominee uh, for this seat, uh, she also decided not to run. So you do right. have a, 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 a bit of an interesting, and I don't know if you have any insight on this, uh, on paper, this great seat, good opportunity for Democrats, but perhaps the two most obvious candidates uh, both passing up uh, a chance to come back and, and try and get the job done against Schweikert. Yeah, it's an interesting situation. Um, Hodge initially was considering running and then decided not to. Um, and I think, you know, he is a bit younger than Barrett. Barrett was also relatively young, but Hodge's um, was one of the younger nominees last cycle. Um, and I think 
he was probably making a calculation that, you know, this is not the last time he can run for office. Um, and especially um, because pretty early on, it was clear that um, like Cherney and Galan Woods and Shaw were taking a look at this seat. Um, I think maybe he probably just made the calculation that he didn't want to also join a competitive primary. But um, but yeah, like, like Jacob said, um, this isn't necessarily a death knell for any of these candidates, obviously. Like you can get through a competitive primary um, and come out in a relatively strong position still. And so um, it'll be interesting to see how this develops over the next several months. None of these candidates are particularly progressive or would identify as progressive. And so I don't know if it's really going to be a um, fight to the left in the way that Republicans expect it will be. But this will definitely be a primary to watch. Yeah. And this and this will be taking place in a state that is going to be a battleground, a presidential yeah. battleground, a Senate race that we will probably spend an entire episode, uh, a podcast episode on at some point, all happening on the ballot at the same time. But this is this is is going to be one of the one of the epicenters. Can you have two epicenters of an election? Uh, but one <laughs> of the key battlegrounds of the 2024 presidential uh, and and congressional elections. And finally, our last segment, look what I found. Uh, it could be anything that we found recently. It doesn't have to be politics. It could be music, sports, pop culture. Uh, Jacob, what did you find? So while I was recovering from a case of COVID-19 last week, I watched a lot of movies. And in particular, I enjoyed uh, Murder on the Orient Express, uh, the original version, not the recent remake, uh, the adaptation of the Agatha Christie uh, novel, it's got a star-studded cast, Albert Finney, Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, Vanessa Redgrave, Sean Connery randomly shows up, uh, and and more. And uh, the, the dry humor was exactly what I needed while I was recuperating. Uh, it is on HBO Max along with the, the new Kenneth Branagh uh, remakes and, and a number of other Agatha Christie films. If you're into whodunits, murder mysteries, uh, they're definitely worth a watch. Jacob, you could have been watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, <laughs> and you chose to watch this movie classic. Look what your your priorities are completely out of whack. I, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I'll try and do better next time I get COVID. Uh, <laughs> it's first on the list. Well, let's let's hope that that is not anytime not anytime soon. So on a different on a different track, I found my notes from a candidate interview from Eric Hovde's 2012 candidate interview. We mentioned Hovde earlier. He is likely to get into the U.S. Senate race in Wisconsin this cycle. He ran in 2012. We interviewed him. Um, I'm going to save some of those nuggets for uh, our, our future analysis, but I was reminded that his father was the president of the National Association of Realtors in the late 70s, I believe 1979. Uh, and so, you know, the realtors are one of the largest and kind of most powerful interest groups uh, in our in our political system. But uh, that jogged my memory about a, about a few things. But we'll we'll leave the we'll leave the rest of these uh, uh, the mystery around the my these Eric Hovde notes uh, for later. But uh, Aaron, Aaron, what did you find? So I am a connoisseur of teen movies on Netflix, um, but I have been behind over the last couple of months. So I recently watched You Are So Not Invited to My Bot Mitzvah, 
which was cute. I wouldn't consider it like a top one, um, but I did enjoy it. It has Adam Sandler and both of his daughters, which is fun because they are like exactly like him in terms of their mannerisms. Um, but yeah, I thought it was cute. If you're looking for like a short, like hour and a half break from reality, I would recommend it. And I was listening carefully to your answer, Aaron. I did not hear Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Uh, in that, in that. I guess that would also count as like a break from reality. <laughs> hey, yeah, yes, I, that would definitely qualify. And I've actually heard good things about about that Adam Sandler. People telling me that they actually want to watch it with me and, and my wife since we have uh, we have a teenage daughter. Oh yeah, Nathan, they, you should watch that it. That would be amusing. <laughs> I need to. I do need to. This could bring inside elections together. Uh, I don't know as a something we could unite behind, uh, but it sounds it sounds fun. I'm a fan of Adam Sandler's other. If it's uh, you know, if, you, if you guys haven't seen Happy Gilmore, let me just give you all uh, other movies that you need to be watching from my childhood, and that'll make things a lot easier. Oh, uh, unlike Bill and Ted, I, I I can claim Happy Gilmore as a as a. Uh, as as one I've gotten to before, Nathan. So there we go. Have, you don't have to worry about that. This was going to be your last podcast episode, <laughs> but you're, you're back. You'll be welcomed back next time. So, and that's actually all the time we have for for this episode. Uh, we discussed the latest round of fundraising numbers in the Senate, key open seats to watch in the House, including that district in Lansing, and we talked. I talked mainly about how Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is relevant to all of these to all of these races. But thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial elections. Uh, with a combination of reporting and data, we break down the races and bring valuable context to the key elections. Please go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the bi-weekly newsletter. We have individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailor-made for corporate and association packs. Uh, if you like this episode, please uh, subscribe to the podcast. Click the thumbs up on if you're watching it on YouTube. Leave us a comment. Do all the things that will help other people find us. Uh, if you didn't like today's episode, please email Kiana Reeves. We also wanted to thank our producers, Alan Tuzinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and our associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us again next time.